Yeah, pray to Mandy. Okay. She it. does live in the sky, and she will answer your prayers. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the latest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 193 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi there. David Brady. My poop doesn't stink. And if you want to find out, stick around for the pics. Or if you desperately don't want to know, that's when you should start fast forwarding. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and I kind of want to really quickly dedicate this show to uh, somebody who got me started on this career path. My grandfather uh, was an engineer. He did some work on the space shuttle and some other things, and he passed away last week. He was the person that kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to electronics and math and engineering, and that's kind of what got me started at an early age uh, heading toward this career path. So anyway, it's kind of a weird thing for me, but anyway, I, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Tennyson Smith. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Ryan Stout. Morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, I guess uh, a little background. So I've been doing programming forever, like like you said, since I was a kid, and recently I've been working on a project called Volt that... Some of you may have heard of it's a Ruby web framework and a client side framework, all written in Ruby. So we can kind of dive into that in a minute if you want. I saw uh, the movie about Vault the other day. Does it use the Ohm gem? Does Vault use the Ohm gem? Yeah. No, that just oh. it just introduces resistance. Stop it. <laughs> oh, I got, you. I got it. <laughs> yeah, but volts plus ohms is or volts times ohms divided by divided ohms. divided by ohms divided by ohms is current. So anyway, all right, we'll stop. So anyway, do you want to give us a brief overview of what Volt is? Yeah, so I guess a good way to think of it is we're sort of trying to rethink how you build web applications. 
back when Rails came out, what you were doing was basically spitting out HTML. And now we're sort of in a, in a place where we're building entire MVC apps, both on a client and the server. And so what we're trying to do is eliminate a lot of the duplication there. And then once we do that, we can kind of get some nice benefits. So for example, what we do with Vol is we actually compile your Ruby code to JavaScript using Opal, which is basically a Ruby to JavaScript. They call it a transpiler, but it takes your Ruby code and kind of maps it to JavaScript so that you can run it in the browser. And so we use that to let you write, you know, your models, your controllers, your views all in Ruby, and then it runs both on the server and the client. And so some of the benefits of that are once you have where you're sharing models on both sides, we can do things like automatic data syncing where your models, as soon as you change them on the client, it automatically syncs it back to the server. And then we've got kind of rules you can set up to say, okay, go ahead and sync this out to all of the other clients that are listening to the data and things like that. So a good way to think of Vault is kind of it's both a front-end framework and a back-end framework together, and then has all these things to make it so you know you don't need to build a REST API just to sync data to the client, for example. We've seen this kind of thing in JavaScript, right? With the mm-hmm. Meteor, they've got... Yep. Uh, there are a couple of other ones that I've heard rumors of that I haven't really looked at or tested out. And kind of the dream with these is that you can share code between the front end and the back end. Is, is that really the case with Vault? Yeah, it is. It's interesting, too, because what ends up happening is I find that you're actually writing probably about 70% of your code on the client, uh, and it really just runs on the client. And then long term, we're going to do things where, you, you know, you can render ahead of time on the server to get kind of faster page loads and things like that. But it's nice because especially for your models where all of your business logic is, you can write that once and then share it. You don't actually end up needing, you know, your views don't necessarily need to render on the server. Aside from the quick load, it doesn't really give you a benefit to have kind of Rails-y views. It's more of how you do a front-end bindings and things like that. And then, like I said, with the models, it's great to be able to share, you know, we can do things like real-time validations where you're using the same validations everywhere. And then, you know, you get the benefit of, as you type, you can see the errors in the fields and things like that. You're accomplishing a lot of that using WebSockets? Yeah, so the the actual data syncing is WebSockets with some fallbacks, and that lets you you know push the data back out, and then Vault gives you these reactive bindings for the DOM. So whenever your model changes, it's going to automatically update the page. I thought the simultaneous syncing to multiple clients that you demonstrated in your RubyConf talk was really cool. How does Vault deal with conflicting changes from two different clients? So at the moment, it's a last right win strategy, which is obviously not ideal. The ideal solution, I think, as far as long term is operational transform. There is actually a JavaScript framework that I would say is mostly dead right now, but called Derby that does operational transform on your models. So whenever you change one of your, uh, some property in the model, it's almost like you've got a Google Docs style real-time editor in that field, for example. So if two people make changes at the same time, there's kind of version tracking built in and it's able to merge those changes based on, they call it, I think what they call it, something intent. Anyway, uh, there's a whole kind of science behind 
operational transform. We haven't implemented that yet just because it's quite a bit of work. There's actually a JavaScript library called ShareJS, and there is a sort of Ruby port for the back end that somebody did, but it's a little out of date, and so when we do get to that, we'll have to kind of decide what the best approach for that is. The nice thing is the algorithms are fairly well understood. It just kind of takes a while to build them and then make sure they're tested and everything. So so I guess right now, if two people are typing into the same field with a live binding, you know, they are going to override each other's changes. The one thing I would say too is that I think Meteor really tried to pitch itself as a real-time framework and I think it almost hurt it a little bit in that, you know, most people aren't building real-time apps, at least from what I've seen. And so one of the things we're trying to do with Volt is really make it so that it's also good for CRUD and kind of the things that you would use, you know, maybe Angular or something like that for. So that simultaneous multiple client updates isn't like the use case you're aiming for. It's just a side benefit that happens. Yeah, I think people are going to start using that more and more. One of the things that's interesting, though, is you have these situations where you have some validations on your model, right? Your model has to be in some sort of state before you want to pass it around. And so the way Volt deals with that is you can, your models basically sync automatically as soon as you change a property on the model. But what we do is if you don't want to sync it right away, you can grab what's called a buffer on it. And a buffer won't actually sync until you call save on it. And so that kind of gives you a nice way to, you know, do form validations and things like that because you don't want, it makes it so that you can make sure the model's valid before it actually goes in and syncs it to everybody. So you have the option of taking control of when your syncing happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the models themselves are kind of inherently syncing as you go. So it's kind of, do you, you, you kind of decide, oh, I'm going to bind this field to the model directly, and then you kind of get the real-time updating, or I'm going to bind it to a buffer, and then when they hit you know, submit, it's going to sync back. And so it kind of changes the pattern of, of if you think of, you know, handling forms, you don't actually do, you know, an Ajax call or anything. You just save the buffer back to the model when all the form data is ready. And the buffers will give you the same kind of validations that you get on the models. If what are limitations on things that you can do with models in terms of translating them from Ruby to JavaScript with Opal? So Opal's actually, I would almost say shockingly good at, at how compatible it is with Ruby. There's a couple things, you know, it doesn't have mutable strings, which you probably shouldn't be doing anyway. There's actually a pretty short list. I'm trying to think of what else. Some of it, there's like a couple things where, so they do like new number type. They have one number type instead of, you know, there's numeric and then everything just kind of inherits from there. So you don't have fixed num and big num and things like that. Really, it's it's actually surprising how little you have to spend thinking about kind of, oh, in Opal, I've got this limitation or that limitation. You know, they have kind of all the things that, you know, you can... Do in Ruby, you've got method missing, you've got all the module stuff, and it's pretty impressive if, if you've used it. Now, what version of Ruby is it emulating? I think they're doing most of Ruby 2 specs. They just added keyword args. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and they just actually pulled in the MRI specs, too, so they're starting to try and pass all those as well. So, now, You said that this tested against Ruby specs in your talk, and I thought you said it was passing against them. It's not um, all not all of them. Okay. So, okay. Sorry if I didn't make it clear. I was yeah. going to ask you, how do you pass Ruby specs if you don't have mutable strings? And I was completely prepared for you to say, well, under the hoods, they copy the string every time you mutate the string or something like that. Yeah, but, no, they're actually, you know, just 
having some that they're disabling and they're just saying, you know, we don't support this. They do a pretty good job, especially of saying, we want to support as much of Ruby as we can. And then if something is just like horrendous on performance, they don't do it, you know. So they're trying to make it where you can do almost everything you can do in normal Ruby, but then, you know, it's not going to like blow up on you performance wise. Let's talk so. about how Opal does math for a minute. Mm-hmm. Because yes. <laughs> I saw I saw that passing in a string that contains hash minus. Yep. So that that's an interesting one. Um, so out of the box, yeah, they're doing method calls for you know addition, subtraction, things like that. They have a flag compiler flag that you can set for what they call inline operators. So that's actually just going to use you know the normal JavaScript addition, subtraction, things like that. If you have heavy math stuff, I would actually suggest if you've got a bunch of heavy math stuff and you only need it on the client side, you can do inline JavaScript. That's probably the better way to do it. But you you could also enable the inline operator. Flag like they call it. Okay, so skipping over the fact that I find the sentence doing lots of math with JavaScript to be hilarious just <laughs> in and of itself. Um, <laughs> why would you not just enable inline math all the time? What do you what do you lose? Do you lose um, debugging ability when you do that? You lose the ability to override the plus and minus on fixed not oh, okay. on numerics, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, which I guess most of the time that's not a big deal, so Wait, so what you're giving up is the ability to monkey patch one of the core types? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So let me go back to my original question. Why would you not just (laughs) enable this flag all the time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the Opal team may know, they may know more about it. You know, that's kind of from, from what I've seen. I haven't had any projects doing a ton of math in JavaScript yet, so I haven't really looked into it that much. Well, I have a really good idea. Go play with floating point math in JavaScript for a while. (laughs) And then come back and tell me how that worked out for you. Well, that's yeah. the only kind you can play with, right? I was going to say, play with any other type of math in JavaScript until you figure out that it's actually using floating point behind that's your back. That's right. Yeah, it and, is. And, and now a lot of the browsers have, they actually do have typed arrays where you can do, you can specify, you know, integers and things like that. I think. I could be wrong on that. But I'm pretty sure Chrome and Firefox and maybe Safari have it now. So you can do, there are ways to do, you know, integer math and things like that. But not as, e- not as easily, obviously. Yeah, because floating point math turns out to be just as spooky as it sounds. <laughs> so I'm curious, does the fact that it's, that it's tightly linked JavaScript on the client and on the server, does that just sort of imply that we're talking about single-page apps here, or is that an orthogonal kind of consideration? So the way we do it is actually, you basically build apps as what we call components. And so components are kind of these almost self-contained parts of apps that you can kind of reuse and then components can depend on each other. And basically what you can do is you can say, this part of my app renders with this component and then that component will include other components. And so you can kind of have, some of this is still a work in progress, but you can kind of have multiple components that are individual single page apps within your app as a whole, if that makes sense. And so the way we do moving between state and the apps is just with URLs. And so you might have where, you know, part of your app is on, you know, one set of URLs loads up one kind of single page app and then another set. When it goes to render a template or a URL, it'll say, okay, are these routes within this component? And then if they're not, it'll actually just do a normal request. Oh, okay. And so, so what we try to do is make it so that, you know, you don't have to load up your entire app 
as a single page app. Because what I found at least is, you know, after a while you're sending every template or every, you know, all the code for your entire app. And really there are sections of your app that aren't going to get hit that often. And so you might as well make those as a separate kind of single page app, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, think, I, th- I think I get it. So a component is just a section of the page that you use. It. You can think of it as not the entire page as an application, but, you know, each little bit. Yeah, components almost. So they're sort of similar to like if you used React components. So they're sort of, you can render their contents as a template or a tag. So you end up where it can be anything from, you know, a field with error messages to the blog pages or kind of anything in between. Uh, if that makes sense. So you have where it's, you can package up a specific part of your app and then use it from inside of another component. So you get I'm these curious, components. I'm curious what got you interested in the, in this basic problem and what led you to start making the Volt project? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. So I've been thinking about, I mean, I've been doing kind of heavy front-end apps for a while, I guess. So, you know, my first job out of college in 05 was, you know, doing kind of really big, heavy front-end JavaScript apps. And then we were doing Java on the back end. And then, you know, I've been doing Ruby development for a while and seeing kind of how, especially now, now that we've got, you know, a lot of people are using Angular, Ember, you really are doing two apps. And at least for me, you're duplicating a ton of code on both sides. And so anytime you know, you've got a ton of code duplication, there's some kind of low-hanging fruit, I think, to improve workflows and improve the way we do things. And I think especially for me, I, I do mostly freelancing. You know, it's myself and my brother. We, we have a really small shop that we have. And I sort of see if things keep going the trajectory they're going, we're, we're going to kind of lose the ability as a single developer to be able to build an entire app. So people are starting to specialize a little bit where I'm just a front-end person or I'm just a back-end person. And I think specialization is fine, but personally, I, I want to be able to easily build an entire app myself. And so kind of I, I kind of see that coming and would like to kind of try and steer things a little bit in the other direction. <laughs> so I definitely see... And I've, I've heard other people speculate that in another few years, most of the front-end stuff is actually going to be written in a transpiled language. It's not going to be written in JavaScript itself. Yeah. Uh, though ES6 does give you some nice features, and as it gets adopted, things will be better, I think. But mm-hmm. the thing that I'm really wondering about, and I'm going to go back to the one of the points you made, and that is the code sharing between the front-end and the back-end. How much can you do sharing front-end versus back-end? And where does that kind of fall down to kind of start with? And and then I've got another question after that. Okay. Yeah. And as far as right now, it's pretty good. You can do, like I said, most of your controllers and views. We, what we do a thing called tasks, which are basically a way to sort of call backend only code from the client. So there are cases where you might have something like you don't want to load you've either got security issues or something where you don't actually want to load the data on the front end. So you might have, it's too big to process on the front end. And so we use tasks for that to basically, from the front end, you can you know call a method on a task class and then you'll, it'll return a promise to tell you when it's done and give you back the results and things like that. So I would say, I mean, the sharing code I think is is important. And there are a lot of things that you're duplicating. For me, the biggest thing is just model business logic. 
But I think the other big benefit is you're not learning a separate, you don't need to be thinking in two frameworks at once, if that makes sense. And then the other big benefit is the automatic data synchronization. You, you can kind of eliminate, I think I mentioned like making all these REST APIs just for syncing data. And then it kind of lets you have just a lot less code because everything's kind of all in one place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I'm writing a Volt app and I have model logic is the, the example you could bring it up. And I think it's kind of the most obvious one. You know, you have, mm-hmm. you have validations and you have certain ways that certain data is handled. And so mm-hmm. if you can handle it the same on the front end and the back end and only change it in one place, then you get all the benefits of having dry code. How do you write that? I mean, is it just tasks or can you create a user class that actually has the validations and crap in it? that does all the work, and then you just include it on your front end and your back end. Yeah, actually, so tasks are only kind of used when you don't want something to be on the front end. So typically, you would make, like I said, you could do a user model, and then it's similar to Rails. You know, we have validates email and validates. and, And so those, they actually get checked when a model gets synced back to the server, you know, they get checked on the client side and then they also get checked on the server side. So you can kind of be sure that it's following that. We also have permissions that are sort of still on the master branch, but should be out hopefully this week. So that there you can say, you know, on create, if this is owned by the current user, then allow them to edit these fields. And, and those, again, run on both sides. So it knows, you know, who you are and it's checking to, you can kind of write all this permissions logic. And we actually put that in the model as well. That kind of raises a security question for me. You're exposing your business logic through the JavaScript that gets loaded. Does that raise any issues? That's interesting. I, you know, I haven't thought of it that way. I guess it's without it, you get sort of the security through obscurity, right? <laughs> yeah, so maybe you do lose a little bit of that. But I guess I would say, you know, it is checked on the server side. So aside from them being able to sort of see some of, you know, who can do what, it's sort of that, like, if you mess it up, then either way they were able to get in. It just might not have been as obvious, if that makes sense. So ideally, I think actually... I personally like having the permission logic in the model because then it's very strict as to, you know, you can't make one controller where you accidentally forget to check some permission and then something gets through. You know, it's it's always there at the model level. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, well, and to most people, they're not going to go look at the JavaScript. And if it's minified, then, you know, they're not going to go and, and untangle it either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're really only looking at people who are in it to try and make some trouble for you anyway. Yeah, and I think either way, you know, either way you want to get that right. You don't yeah. want to be you don't want to be depending on obscurity to keep things safe, you know. Yeah. One other question I have is you mentioned that it all runs over WebSockets and most modern browsers actually don't suck at WebSockets now, but even a year or two ago some browsers really had problems mm-hmm. with them. Is this something that you just tell people, "Look, you've got to have a modern browser?" Or um, do you use polyfills or what? Yeah, we're actually using SockJS at the moment, which is it's a JavaScript library that does WebSocket and then falls back to all these. So they have, you know, JSONP and it, all the way back to polling. There's kind of all these intermediate steps. We are actually switching how we're doing that, but ideally we want to support back quite a few browsers. So we're always going to have a couple fallbacks, I think, to make sure that works until 99% of people are running a browser with fallbacks. 
Right now, Vault is targeting IE 10 and above, but there's basically one thing that you have to include to go back to IE 8, and then everything works. The Opal guys, actually, I don't know why. They must have some project that they depend on. They actually target IE 6, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> and all the way all the way forward from there. Did that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever I hear IE 6, I'm always like, Wait, yeah. yeah, somebody's paying them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they've got, I know they have some bigger projects on it, and they, yeah, they're they're on staff for somebody, and so they're, I think they need that as a requirement. I so. noticed that you said your goal in building Volt was to enable one person to be able to build an entire app. Yeah, and I guess I shouldn't say that wasn't a goal as much as that was sort of my driving force behind it. Hopefully that is something you can do with Vault, but I, I don't want to pitch it as it's something for one person to use. You know, I, we've tried to do a lot of things to make it really good for large teams to use as well. You know, I've, I've kind of worked on both sides. So right now I'm freelancing, but I've also worked in bigger teams and kind of seen, hopefully seen both sides of that. So. Oh. Okay, so that was more the inspiration than a goal. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about eliminating the overhead of the REST APIs for syncing data, as an enterprise sort of developer, I hear increasing coupling. Mm-hmm. There's benefits to that. You totally reduce overhead, you maintain uniformity, and yeah, you increase the size of what can fit in one person's head. In the past, I've observed that such things, the trade-off is that you decrease potential for modularity for hard boundaries that you can really define the API, which is those those REST APIs mm-hmm. that you don't have to build. So that brings me to the question that I've been itching to ask since the beginning of the call, which is, what are the limitations? When should you not use Volt? That's a good question. So I think just to address kind of the first part of your question, the, right now, you know, you do get the the model syncing for free. We're working on kind of a, an easy way to take those models and expose them as, as a REST API. And then for if you've got some other third-party thing or something that you want to consume that. And then the other thing, if you look at the what Meteor's done, they actually have kind of a defined protocol that's basically for real-time syncing of data APIs. And so we may try to work that in, or we may, depending on, I haven't looked at it enough, but if it's good, we'll probably just implement it. If it's not, we may try to do something similar. But I guess to your question of when should you not use Vol, I would say right now, if you need something really production ready, you know, we're still definitely a work in progress. I think you're right. There, For very large teams, that boundary, I think, is good. And I think there are projects where, especially once you get to a point where it's so large that you're going to have people who never see the front end, so they're entirely focused on one little element of the back end, you know, then Vault at this point is probably not a good choice for that. But I do think the thing, too, is that more and more apps are very heavy front end, and I could be wrong on that. Or there are a lot of things where it makes sense to do it as as a front end, you know, have front end templates rendering things and handling certain things, and people aren't doing that yet, but it would make more sense like that. So I think for any of those, Vault is a great choice. Is that... Yeah, yeah. it also answers another question I had, which another of the disadvantages of shared code between the server and the client is that the server and the client have different limitations and priorities. Mm -hmm. And when you couple those, you're, in a sense, limiting both of them by the restrictions of the other. 
So I guess let me talk about one example and I can kind of tell you how we handle that. So one example for, is checking uniqueness, right? So when a model saves and has a unique validation on it, you want to run that on the server, right? You can't be sure that it's going to pass on the client because of the lag, right? And so the way we do that is our validations can actually, the whole kind of validation and saving stack will return a promise and so it will test all of the validations that it can on the client. So if all you have are, you know, validates email, validates links, validates format, it'll test all those on the client and then return immediately because it knows when it goes to save it that it's going to pass. However, if there's one like a uniqueness validation which can only be tested on the server, that promise isn't going to resolve right away. It's actually going to wait until it hears back from the server that it did save. And so you kind of get, I think in a lot of ways, that gives you kind of the benefits of both, the best of both worlds, because you're able to get that instant feedback when it's possible. Does That's it- cool. So it's coupled by default, but you can decouple it if you want to. Yeah, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways. And you you can kind of go in and say, here's the logic I want to run, you know, when you're running validations or something. And you can say, only run this. This one is server specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I- love the idea of using promises for that because you can basically then just count on getting a response when it's ready. Yeah, and honestly, there's, there's almost no other good way to do it. <laughs> Which promises yeah. library are you using? Uh, so Opal actually has one built in um, oh, or okay. that they, they kind of include as a, as a library. I have a follow-on to Jessica's question about the decoupling of things. It seems like Ruby web development seems to be moving into two separate families right now. There's the back-end farm-out of SOA, service-oriented architecture. Mm-hmm. That's the Montagues. And the in-browser <laughs> JS apps people are the Capulets. And what I want to know is, if we bring Volt and SOA together, will it result in a tragically romantic double suicide? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I read a book once. Don't act so surprised. <laughs> That's a great question. So we're trying to do, if you've taken a look at the way we do components, you know, I see a lot of apps where you build them and you think, okay, at some later point, I'm going to pull this out and I'm going to stick it in a gem or something and then I'm going to reuse it. And so what we try to do with components is basically make that the default start workflow because I find when you go to pull something out later, you've already coupled it, right? You, yep. you may not realize what you're doing, but you're already coupling it. And so Vault is really, we try to build things and try to have it help you build things in these components where they're sort of these isolated parts that can easily be nested together. And what you're able to do with those components is really easily stick them into gems. So I think, I think, you know, Rails had engines, uh, or has engines. And I think they just didn't quite take off the way everyone had hoped they would. I think there was a little bit too much complexity there and maybe it was just easier not to do it, right? And so we're really making it with Vault where it's, Harder not to do it is the goal. And so we're able to do two. We haven't done this yet, but long term, we'd like to be able to take it where you can take those components and then run them as services as a separate app, right? So since your component, you know, if I have a blog on my page, right? And this is just a simple example, but all of the things needed to run that blog, except for the user, are going to be within the blog component. And so, you know, your models and your views and templates and things like that. And so that's like a super simple example, but having that where you could easily farm that out and run it as a separate service. And then what I'd like to do is is use something like some sort of distributed event bus so that, you know, you could easily 
tie in multiple services, even in different languages or whatever, really easily. Again, long term, probably a ways off. But so, so I think components are kind of the first step towards a service oriented architecture. Uh, we haven't kind of done any of the work for that yet, but I think we're kind of laying the foundation for it. Ryan, I am a strong proponent of test driven development. How on earth do you test a Volt application? So we do two things. Or on the server side, it's pretty easy. On the client side, we actually, uh, Opal supports RSpec. So we just, we, our tests are in RSpec and we run RSpecs both against, uh, the MRI version and Opal. And then we also do some integration tests with Capybara to kind of test, you know, to make sure the browsers are actually doing what they're supposed to and that, you know, some of, some of that code is just a little easier to test as an integration test. So it's kind of a mix of running things in Opal and then also, you know, running everything, uh, doing some integration tests with Capybara. One thing that I, I'm wondering here is you've been talking about Volt. You've said, well, we'd like to add this and we'd like to add this mm. and we'd like to add this and we'd like to add this. Do you feel like Volt may at some point become a little bit too big or a little bit too complicated? It's kind of funny, actually. I feel like part of it is you guys have just happened to bring up most of the things that we want to add. <laughs> yeah, I think some of that will end up as, you know, third-party gems and things. I, I don't think, especially compared to Rails, right now Vault is actually fairly simple, relatively speaking. So so if you think of doing both a Rails, like say a Rails and an Angular app or a Rails and an Ember app, which is sort of what Vault tries to give you is, is everything you would have in there were much simpler. You know, I, I haven't looked at the lines of code count, but last time I looked, I think we were like less than 10,000, I want to say. So it's not it's not a huge code base at this point. And we kind of, we're trying to, you know, it is a little bit batteries included. You know, we do want to give people most of the things they need out of the box, but there definitely is kind of that fine line of, of if you have too many things, you know, then you're just adding this complexity that nobody needs and isn't benefiting anyone. But I, I think too, the, the other thing is since we can push some of the complexity of DOM updating and syncing and all that into the framework. As an end user, you're not you're not really the actual kind of surface area of the APIs is pretty small. And I think we as developers don't want to maintain a massive app, but I think for the average user the most important thing is kind of the API surface area. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the uh, the persistent story. Does Volt have an opinion on that? So right now we're just using Mongo, and the reason for that, I'll give the little disclaimer asterisk. <laughs> the reason for that is that in order to do some of the sort of query stuff, we basically need to have a query parser, a full query parser that can understand. We can look at a query and look at a document and answer whether or not that document matches that query. And so for us, Mongo was the easiest thing to get started with because their query languages are really easy to parse. The next step after that is actually we're working on a data persistence API where basically anyone can implement a couple of things and then you'll be able to sort of build your own adapters. We're doing things a little different from a lot of other frameworks. We're not actually shooting for database agnosticism, but we're shooting for supporting multiple databases. So at least for me, I feel like the complexity of having all the data stores have the same API is going to be pretty high. But if we do it kind of this way, we'll be able to really easily make it so, you know, I want Postgres or I want RethinkDB or something like that. And it'll be pretty easy to add those. Whereas if we're trying to abstract over all the details of all of those, it's going to get a lot more complicated. So at least right now, that's the plan is to do a data persistence API so that anyone can kind of implement adapters and not just for data stores, even for things like I have a news feed that updates, you know, and I need to push it 
whenever new things come into it. So we're trying to create a real nice abstraction that you can implement to kind of provide any data that you can query and store and, and update. So I just realized I had a paradigm shift just now. I, I was thinking of Volt as like just this chunk of Ruby that you can manipulate and anywhere Ruby can go, it can go. If you point a web browser at it, it does magic. But this sounds like it's it's a much more closed off maybe ecosystem. For example, I was about to ask you, so can I deploy this to Heroku? And now I realize that's almost laughable, right? I mean, you no, actually, actually, you can. You, you can. Um, yes. You can. Somebody did it on got it working on Heroku. So yeah. Oh wait, 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 wait. It has been done. Not yeah. you can. Okay. No, you there's, can. It's in the There's docs. a big difference. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 So, yep. I was asked, so the proof of concept has been done and somebody has documented this is how you mm-hmm. actually do it. Okay. Yep. But you, yep. you would have to connect to a Mongo server somewhere. Um, yeah. So you have to add to Postgres. You know, one of the Mongo extensions and then everything else runs as a rack app. You know, you have okay. to have a, a rack. At the moment, it has to be thin because of the SockJS implementation, but we're making mm-hmm. it so it'll support any rack server with the rack hijack API. That is so. awesome. And and if, I guess of course you could just push it right up to Heroku with if you didn't care about transportable persistence, right? Can you use yeah, like so the like browsers in browser storage and yep. it's just like your personal app? Yeah, the way we do it in Volt is you take all of your models and they have different ways to access them and each way has a different persistence. So you might say I want to load up my post model but you'll say store.posts and that'll that'll get the ones that are stored in the database or you might say local store.posts and it does a local store or you can even do like parameters or cookies or any and they and then basically the idea is that all these different places to persist have the same API so you can use them all sort of through your model API yeah and, and I think it's kind of hard to ex- explain that really quickly but if you go and watch my uh, RubyConf talk I kind of go into a little more detail on that yeah. You can use the parameters as storage engines, so I can just have like a thousand character URL as my database? <laughs> you could. You wouldn't want to, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would, want to. Puppy. I <laughs> would want to. I would want to. Yeah. Yeah, so if you never touch the store persistence, uh the store area, then it won't even try to connect to the it won't even, you know, try to keep a connection open or anything. So if you if you don't want to use Mongo and you just want to use local store or something, you can you can do that. I love the idea of separating out models from persistence. That's one of my biggest gripes with Active Record and Rails mm-hmm. is that your model by default is a persistence object and any yeah. business logic you add to it violates SRP. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the nice thing too, like our it's funny because the thing I get all the time is people will run the all the tests without the integration tests and they'll be like, This your tests aren't working. I'm like, No, they are working. They just run in like a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and everyone's like, "How is that possible?" I'm like, because we don't touch. You know, for most of them, we don't actually touch Mongo. So. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of funny. So that's, I think, one of the huge benefits too is that we've abstracted persistence away from the models, so that you know you can run all your tests with the in-memory store, and the performance is great. So. How do you pull that off? How do you pull off, like, you're doing stuff where a change in one place can propagate to somewhere else, but you're shooting for, for a amount of separation, it sounds like, from, from the data store. I mean, does that just imply that you're only going to get that kind of transparent instant update across multiple clients if they're all talking to the same server? So, 
Yeah, right now uh, you have to be on one instance of it, which is not ideal, obviously. What we want to do actually is include some sort of distributed event bus to run the syncing between everything. We could do something Meteor does what's called op log tailing in Mongo, but that's very implementation specific. Ideally, we'd want something where those changes can be propagated to all the listening clients. And so we're working on doing Fay integration, and Fay has where you can sort of you can use Redis as the event bus. And then longer term, I'd like to do on JVM, there's Vertex. I don't know if anyone's seen that. And it is sort of a, a mix of a web framework. It's almost a mix of a web framework and an actor framework. And it has this nice, persistent, mostly fault-tolerant event bus that you can use. And it has you know SOX.js connections to the client built in. And so with something like that, you can go and have the... When the data saves, it can say, okay, which outstanding queries are affected by this? And then of those, which models have changed and, you know, what do we need to sync back? And so we're doing that now, but only on your current instance. So you can't, again, it's still a pretty early project, but at the moment you're kind of limited to running one instance, I guess. Okay. But I guess the, uh, I mean, the flip side of that is that you're not coupling it directly to some data store notification. Um, yeah, all, all of that will be abstracted away into the data provider API. So the data provider API will basically have when things get changed, you'll be looking at queries and which queries were affected. And so when things change, the data provider API, it'll call into the data provider API and be like, okay, tell me which queries need to change and what needs to be updated. And so some of that will kind of get pushed into the data provider specific Mm -hmm. uh, implementations. It sounds a lot like Volt on the, the scale that at one end is like less magic, more work, and at the other end is more magic, less work. Volt is is towards the more magic end of the scale. Does that ever worry you, like just maintaining all the the things under the covers? You know, I think it sounds like it's more code than it is. I actually think in a lot of ways, especially, you know, if you look at Rails, there's there's a lot of things in there to handle things like nested, nested attributes for and, you know, strong parameters. And I think, so the analogy that I kind of use is it's like packing a suitcase, you know, where you keep kind of cramming things in there and it gets harder and harder to fit what you need. And so... I think what we're trying to do is kind of dump the suitcase out and start over. And in a lot of ways, we can kind of get rid of things that other frameworks that have been around for a little longer have to maintain. And so for us, because we're starting from the point of using of using the same code on the client and the server, we don't need all the, we don't need a bunch of things that other frameworks need, or we can push them out into third party gems and things like that. And so as a developer on Volt, it's actually really nice because we we can the overall complexity I think is fairly low actually compared to a lot of frameworks obviously not you know something as simple as Sinatra but compared to the front end frameworks too where I think our implementations pretty simple and it sounds more complicated than it is and maybe I guess the thing that worries me most actually is just too much magic for the end user I don't want it to be like I don't understand what's going on here you know and so that I think we'll have to watch for that obviously mhm but yeah, I'm I'm not super worried about it as a developer, you know, like like I said the code base is actually still pretty small, so I think it just kind of sounds especially since it's so different from how a lot of other frameworks do things, it sounds more complicated than it is. And kind of mm-hmm. once you dive in, you'll see, you know, like our our current Mongo data provider API implementations, you know, 100 lines of code or something, it's not it's not that mm-hmm. big, you know. Nice. Oh, at what point are you going to consider Vault 1.0? 
You know, I had hoped we'd be there already. We're definitely not. I think some of that depends on kind of how much time I get. And we, we have quite a few other contributors who are kind of ramping up now. So kind of depends on how fast things go. There's a couple things I'd like to get out and a couple APIs I'd like to kind of stabilize. I would like to get the data provider API out the door and then also get Faye integrated. The Fay integration is pretty close. But yeah, there's, we're at like eight something right now. I think hopefully maybe the next three months or something, we'll see where I think it, we're kind of ready to call it 1.0. And, and I guess I would say, you know, some projects really wait forever for the 1.0. And I think for me, it's more just when we decide to stabilize the APIs. I think we're going to keep adding features and changing around some internals and, and stuff, but kind of the public facing APIs, once they're stable, then I think we'll, we'll call it 1.0 and put it out there. What's been your experience as the leader of the open source community around Vault? It's been great, actually. It, I think, you know, I had always kind of hoped that the project would get some people involved, but it's actually been great. Actually, before it was even ready, I kind of had it up on a GitHub repo, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not promoting this, so no one's going to see it. And uh, Matt's actually tweeted about it, and, you know, we got tons of traffic from that. And I was like, no, 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 it's not ready. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of those. It was probably good, actually, because we got some people in there early, and we actually use Gitter a lot. If you've seen Gitter, it's kind of like a IRC replacement that integrates into GitHub. So we use that, and there's always somebody on the in the Gitter chat room, and so that's been, I think, really helpful to be able to, you know, as a developer, as kind of a main contributor on a project, to be able to say, hey, what do you guys think of this? And, you know, immediately get the feedback and make sure, you know, things are going in the right direction. So it's been really nice to have kind of the larger community. And then recently we've been getting, you know, a lot of contributors. There are a couple of people who, you know, are doing one day a week on it and things like that. So it's been really great to have all that. Is the project at all beginner friendly? Yeah, I think, so it's interesting, actually. We have a surprising number of people who come into the Gitter chat room and are like, I've never done Ruby, I just built blank. And so none of those projects are super complex at this point, but I'd say at least to a certain extent it is. I, I think if you've never done web development, it might be a little tricky, but in a lot of ways it's actually almost more how people expect web development to work, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of things in web development where if you were just thinking of it as sort of, here's my fat client, you know, you wouldn't think, okay, every time something changes, I've got to go and handle the event, and then I've got to go and sync that into a model, and then push that over the specific API, and, you know, there's sort of extra complexity there that, for a beginner at least, we don't have, and so they can kind of just more easily, you know, put something together, I think. But yeah, at the same time, it's an early open source project, so I think our docs are pretty good, but there, you know, there's some holes in there where people will be, you know, hey, what's this? And I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of always working on that, too, so. All right, we have any other questions about Volt? I have a slightly obscure one. So one of the things that Vault does is it gets rid of the whole REST client, REST server, yada, 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 yada. Is there still REST under the hood? And if so, are you taking advantage of any of the other hypermedia extensions of REST? Yeah, so it's actually not REST under the hood. Okay. Um, like I said, we're working on a easy way to sort of make REST, uh, like take your models and expose them as a standard REST API. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that one's actually pretty close to being done too. 
But that would be more for a third party consuming it or some other piece of JavaScript or something. Vault itself actually just uses SockJS gives us sort of a message passing API. So yeah. we can say, you know, send this message to all the clients, send this message to the server. And so we just use that under the hood. I think I mentioned Meteor has, because the, part of the thing is with the live updating, you're not actually pushing all the data all the time, right? So there's they're sort of the initial fetch, but then it's from version blank to version blank, this data changed, and from version, you know, and then it's query-oriented, so you're actually sort of making your queries on the client, and then those are getting sent to the server, and it's getting you back data. So I think the benefits of that, too, is from the browser perspective, it's nice to be able to form a query without needing to create a specific endpoint for it. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And then for things like pagination or something like that, it's, it's really neat because we can actually just, you can do reactive queries. So you're, you know, you might say, my query is, you know, load all the posts and where, you know, limit to five pages and, you know, and then the skip or the starting one can be bound to a parameters model, you know, of, the current page. And then if the current page changes, it's automatically going to update the query and the query is going to go fetch the new data and then the list of posts on the page is going to update. And that's great because all you have to do is make a link to a new parameter value and then everything automatically updates through that whole cycle. Um, and if you're interested in that, there's a kind of a blog, uh, a video on that that yeah. I had done. Yeah, absolutely. I I love the fact that Volt is one entire enclosed ecosystem, but I also start thinking about this in terms of, man, I want to be able to write a native iPhone app that can leverage some of this. And I realize mm-hmm. that's an, that's not Volt's primary purpose. Volt is basically saying, we're going to give up a lot of these general functionality things in order for one slick, specific functionality. But it does make me want to say, well, if I want to put a different client on this, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. And I realize yeah. that the, the whole point of Volt is, no, we're giving you a client. Stop trying to make other clients happen. Well, and and I wouldn't, I actually, I'm not sure I'd say that. Like, I, I think, um, you know, my take on it is the web side of it should be really easy, right? And so if you start with web and then you want mobile, you know, then I think it makes sense to go ahead and build a REST API into it. Or we may do, um, like Meteor has, I think they call it DDP, which is uh, their kind of own protocol that they've made. And there are clients for it in Objective-C and in, you know, all these other languages to kind of do the sort of querying. And you want to be careful with the protocols because I think REST really took off because it was super easy to implement a client in, right? So it's kind of a balancing act of do we want to try and fit the live updating and the querying in there? Or do we just want to stick with REST for third-party consumption? Long-term goal, actually, again, this is this one is the definitely way too ambitious side of things. <laughs> but it would be really great if someone, or possibly me or someone else, was able to take your Ruby code in Vault and your you know models and controllers, and then also do something like Ruby Motion integration, where you could still get the live syncing, and then you'd be writing code to kind of tie to the native UI widgets and things like that. That's not something we're think we're really thinking about much right now, but we're kind of keeping the door open for a, that as a possibility. But I think I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Like I think you know, short term, we definitely need some sort of easy way to make a REST API or a, some other protocol to do the updating. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, this is serve, you know, self-serving of my own personal insanity, which is that I've got a, a bug up my brain right now about HadeOS, which is on beyond REST. Mm-hmm. And you can't have HadeOS if you don't have 
rest right. to begin yeah, exactly. with. Yeah, so I will say we're of the three branches I'm working on right now, one of them is the REST API branch. So I may run that by you when we get there because I've seen a couple talks I'd on love to. ADOS and I, I don't know enough to actually make sure I'm doing it all correctly. So <laughs> As near as I can tell, it's REST plus action verbs. That's mm-hmm. all it is. It's REST okay. plus verbs. Okay. I'll read up on it again before I finish that branch off. Mm-hmm. So sort of on, in the same vein, I haven't seen enough Volt code to know, is it possible to have kind of a semantic core to your application that is Volt agnostic, or does Volt kind of dictate in terms of conventions or things that you include into your models or stuff like that, does Volt kind of dictate a, a connection between your business models and your uh, and the framework? That's a good question. It is pretty opinionated, so you know your models are you could go ahead and take your models and use them outside of Volt. You'd have to pull in quite a bit of stuff to do that. There's a group of people who have kind of legacy Rails apps, for example, and they're working on a project called Third Rail, which is their attempt to get Volt running inside of Rails. And so they do have it where everything boots, and then you actually, the way they're doing it right now is that Volt sort of loads up your Rails pages on the client side. And so it's definitely doable, but I would say at this point, that's not really our focus. You know, we, we are kind of thinking of most of the apps at the moment are going to be sort of full Volt apps, and, you know, you're going to be working with the Volt models because they give you persistence and the reactive updates and things like that. The most common question I get is, can you pull out the reactivity part and reuse it elsewhere? And so I just haven't done it yet, but that should be pretty easy to do. Yeah, I guess it's, it, it is difficult, isn't it, to, if you are working with reactive stuff, it's difficult yeah. to completely separate that from the models. Yeah, it's, uh, because basically the models need to be triggering those change events when they get changed. And right. so we have a thing you can include in a module, you can include in any class and then trigger your own changes. Or you can sort of make your class depend on something like we have a reactive hash and a reactive array that will automatically update, but uh, that will trigger those updates. But Vault does a couple more things where like when you save an array into a model, it goes ahead and replaces it with a reactive array. And so so that, you know, nested all the way down, it can keep track of all those changes. So it's one of those, you could use it outside of the Vault models, but I I don't think, I don't think it'd be worth it. I think you're better off trying to make those as sort of, you know, service wrappers or something like that, you know, service service objects. It seems like it's a weak point in Ruby just across the board is the idea of having business models that are able to notify you about things that happen to them, particularly in a recursive way. You know, one of my fields, which is a string, had some data inserted in the middle, that kind of thing. Just there's no standard for it in Ruby. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are maybe a few languages that deal with it a little better, but, but I would say it's just a hard problem in general as far as you know, making sure that you're, you know, uh, JavaScript is someday going to get the object observe. So we may be able to use that under the hood or something. But really, I think I think the way we're doing it is pretty good. You know, you, you kind of save your data and then it gets wrapped up. And as far as from an end user's point of view, it's you're just accessing it kind of the same way. Actually, I think the advantage that Ruby has over a lot of languages is that, you know, Ruby has universal access principles. So it's actually great because people... You know, you can't just go in and fiddle with something outside of the getter and setter. And so, you know, you see a lot of JavaScript frameworks where they have to use .get and .set to actually trigger so that 
updates to data is a method call. And so it's really nice in Ruby and Opal because we, we get that for free. Yes, definitely. It's interesting because that actually hits on a question that, that I didn't get a chance to really get in er- earlier when it seemed more appropriate, which is just like, is Ruby compelling enough to want to use it on top of another language and, you mm-hmm. know, with the impedance matching that that implies? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think, too, the the thing is until, I don't know if anyone here has used Opal much, but there's actually a shockingly low additional complexity. So I would say the complexity of JavaScript's kind of warts greatly outweighs the complexity of Opal. So Opal's great. It's got, you know, source maps for debugging. There's a thing called framework black boxing now in browsers. So you can kind of take Opal's little runtime library and say that I actually don't want that to show up in my stack traces or in my, you know, stepping, debugging and things like that. So you, you can almost hmm. treat, treat Opal as it's very close to feeling like a native language of the browser mm-hmm. because of source maps and because of framework blackboxing and things like that. And so the complexity is actually just considerably lower than I think you, you'd expect until you get into it. And then it's actually, it's really funny because a lot of people I talk to that are using Opal now, they're like, I keep expecting it not to work and it, it just works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it's a little bit, I think we're so used to dealing with JavaScript and, you know, there are kind of what I would consider some broken semantics in JavaScript. And so you just kind of expect that to work its way up into Opal. But the great thing, I think, with transpiling is that that complexity gets amortized into the compiler. And so it's really the compiler developer's job to handle, you know, all of the intricacies of JavaScript. And so so as a, as a developer on my end, I just get to write Ruby. And I think, you know, Ruby has a lot of nice features that as an end user, you know, it's, it's also great, I'll say, too, to have a standard library. You know, in JavaScript, every framework, every library ships with another library to do even things like iterators and map and reduce and things like that. So it's really great to kind of have that standardized. Are there any folks out there that I would have heard of that might be using Volt for anything? Nothing too large right now. That's actually one of the big things on my to-do list this year is to get a really a large demo app out the door. There's a couple projects that are open source. I need to put links to them. So one guy did a somewhat large project that was kind of a remote control app for VLC. There was some guy did like a presentation syncing tool kind of thing, but nothing really large. So so part of me wants to go ahead and take some time and several of the contributors have expressed interest in this and build a pretty large demo app so that people can go in and see, you know, these are kind of the standard ways that we do things and here's what a good app looks like and and here's where it's going to save you time and things like that. So I guess to answer your question, not at the moment, but hopefully very soon. Just one last question for you, Ryan. Um, so between Volt making it possible to write JavaScript and Ruby and ECMAScript 6, I think, taking on most of the really cool features of CoffeeScript, is there any truth to the rumor I'm starting right now that uh, <laughs> Volt is half of the one-two punch to destroy CoffeeScript? I think Opal is. I think Opal especially, yeah, okay. you know. And, <laughs> and I would say, you know, I've been kind of following the ECMAScript 6 stuff, and it's interesting because I was in a discussion with somebody the other day, and they were, you know, they were like, oh, like ECMAScript 6 is getting all these things, and JavaScript is changing all the time. And I was like, yeah, I mean, they're adding some things. But zero is still false and empty string is still false. Like, like there's just all these things where, you know, like semantic issues with the language that CoffeeScript right. doesn't fix and ECMA 6 isn't going to fix, you know. And IE6 doesn't support ECMAScript 5 yet. Right. Or ever. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and those browsers, it's going to be a long time before you can do non-transpiled ECMA 6. A long time. Yeah. Like, it might be yeah. literally a decade before that becomes a thing. So, so I think, and then at, at that point, it's like, well, if you're already transpiling, why not transpile some other language? You know, the extra, like, especially Ruby's actually great because it's close enough to JavaScript that the, de- the debugging is super easy, but yet it fixes all those semantic problems for you. And then you get... Like I said, standard library and, you know, innumerable and all these great things that you can use. I'll talk to you after the show about an idea I have for an Erlang transpiler. (laughs) I think somebody's working on one. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jessica, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. The other day, I got a cool new coffee maker, and it's called the AeroPress, A-E-R-O Press. And it makes... Uh, makes about a double espresso at one time. And the best part is it practically cleans itself. The cleaning is so easy and that's all I really care about. Uh, so I recommend that. And the only negative is, is it uses an ounce of a coffee at a time. And if you're buying Intelligentsia beans at $18 for 12 ounces, that works out to about $1.50 a cup. But hey, it's cheaper than the coffee shop. All that's right. Aeropresses are great and they're made by a Frisbee company. Yes. Does that mean you can throw your AeroPress around? Only if someone's uh, there to catch it. Probably could. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think that means they're pretty fly. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody coming out this afternoon for a quick game of AeroPress golf? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Avdi, what are your picks? So I thought I would pick some newsletters today. I find myself with less and less time to read the, the tech fire hose. Uh, these days, I, a while back, I drastically cut back who I follow on Twitter because of that. And, and I've never habitually read Hacker News. I almost never read Progit anymore. I like to keep up on what's interesting, but I've, I've found that the fire hose is not efficient. So lately, I've been getting a lot of value out of some newsletters where somebody else curates the content. And uh, a few of those are, uh, first off, there's Ruby Weekly, which most people listening to this probably already know about. That's Peter Cooper's wonderful publication that sums up everything that's everything of note in the Ruby world in the past week. He's got a bunch of other newsletters on other topics, but, uh, but yeah, I get a lot of value out of the, out of the Ruby one particularly. Uh, another one is Hacker Newsletter. Now, like I said, I don't read Hacker News because it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but I have to admit that it is a good attractor for interesting tech articles from time to time. And what Hacker Newsletter does is basically it's a curated set of links where somebody goes through and finds some of the most interesting stories from Hacker News over the past week and puts them into an email and gives you direct links to the stories so you don't have to even look at the comment section. So that's been that's been pretty nice. Uh, another newsletter I've been getting a lot of value out of is called Web Programming Notes from Mike Zabelski. And Mike is an old friend of mine, and he started doing this uh, newsletter a little while back. And it's just a great weekly curated set of, of links about programming and beyond you know, it starts out with programming topics usually, but then it goes out into more just like humanity stuff, um, just really interesting reads. He's a good curator. So those three newsletters are a nice way to keep up on what's interesting without being overwhelmed. And then I will also pick a soap company today. Anywhere you live, I'm sure you have a dozen wonderful local soap makers. And normally I would just advocate, you know, buying local and, you know, whoever is your go-to nearby farmer's market soap maker. But there's one in particular that's close to me that I've been really, really impressed with. It's called Paintbox Soapworks. It's it's based in York, Pennsylvania. And she makes some really remarkable scents, stuff that I've never really come across 
from other soap makers, very distinctive and uh, kind of idiosyncratic sense. And she also has some terrific kind of off the beaten path scents that are specifically oriented towards men, which is something that I don't usually see a lot of from like soap and, and scent makers. Uh, so I've been, I've been using her stuff for a while. She's got like, just as an example, like one of the scent varieties that I've liked is dead leaves on the dry ground. And it is actually reminiscent of that in a nice autumnal sort of way. So yeah, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. All her stuff is available on Etsy. So you don't have to be near me, near me to get it. Awesome. Coraline, what are your picks? The first thing I wanted to point out is an excellent tutorial on IRC that is hosted on doubleunion.org. I'm seeing among a lot of people that I know a resurgence in interest in IRC, and there's some great communities forming around different interest areas um, there as well. So what the Double Union um, tutorial does is it really gives you start-to-finish instructions, how to connect, what to do once you're there. And it's it's a really great, very beginner-friendly introduction to this like venerable technology that's been around probably since the beginning of the Internet almost. And with that, once you have learned how to IRC, if you are a new Ruby developer, I would strongly recommend a channel on Freenode called New2Ruby. It's hash hash, new, the number two, and Ruby. And it's, it's uh, intended to be a smaller, quieter place for new and aspiring Rubyists to connect with people who are more experienced and get one-on-one attention for getting questions answered or getting pointed to resources to help them learn. Um, it's a really great, very small community that I recommend to anyone who's new to the field. All right, David, what are your picks? Okay, so before everybody turns off their audio device, I have three picks, and I'll, I'll prepare, prepare you for this as we go in. I have one pick that's a joke that's relevant to the episode. I have one pick that is freaking awesome, and my last pick is both. And the last one is the, the one that I warned you about in the intro. So my first pick is relevant to the show today. There was an April Fool's joke back in 2008. And I want to say that Prague Dave, Dave Thomas, was one of the people that was involved with it. But I, I, I haven't been able to confirm that. And I apologize. There were two people that did it. And I apologize. I can't remember who the other person was. And I might be wrong about Prague Dave. So I might be wrong about both. So I apologize for misremembering it. All I remember is that it was freaking hilarious. In the aftermath of all the hype about Ruby on Rails and build a blog in 15 minutes, they released an April Fool's joke of a new technology called COBOL on COGS. And you can get to that, to that website at COBOLOnCOGS.org. It looks like a COBOL program. It looks, I mean, you have to see the website. It is just beautiful, ultra retro. I mean, they they somehow even managed to program the text to flicker. Like you've got a bad varistor somewhere in the back of the the electron gun in your ancient CRT monitor. So absolutely fun and kind of a fun April Fool's joke. My second pick is the most amazing piece of technology I've seen in, oh gosh, months, if not all of this year and probably the last. It's called Duet Display. And what it is, is you can use your iPad as a second monitor. You flip open your laptop, you plug in your iPad, stand it up on the stand, you turn on the Duet Display on your MacBook, and then you go over to your iPad and start the Duet Display app. It's not free. It's it's like 15 bucks, I think. It's not cheap. It's definitely not a $2 app. But it gives you a freaking second monitor out of your iPad. And I am using a high-end MacBook Pro that has plenty of video RAM. So I am using the HDMI port to drive a 1080p monitor. I'm using a Thunderbolt video port to HDMI to drive a second 
HDMI monitor. I have the laptop open, so I'm using the laptop monitor, and I have the Duet display plugged in. I literally have four monitors going at once. It is awesome. I've never felt like a better about myself as a real estate baron when it comes to video real estate. So Duet Display, they're at Duet Display on Twitter and DuetDisplay.com is where they're at. And my third pick, I've been I've been thinking about this through the whole episode and in deference to the fact that we want to keep this show PG or PG rather than PG-13, I'm going to clean this up a whole lot. So what I'm going to say is my third pick is freaking amazing. There is a product, it is real and it really works. It's called Poo Puri. And what this is is a scent that you when you go into the bathroom to do number 2, you lift up the seat and you spray it on the water. And then you have a seat and you do your business and this scent keeps the odor from coming back up. And Avdi's asking me in the back channel if I've picked this before and the answer is yes I have because I think I've picked the commercials for it because they are freaking hilarious. What I haven't picked is the actual product because I've never actually tried it. And I asked about a month ago on the show for someone just to, hey, chuck me a bottle and I'll give you a thorough review on the show. And Geek Sam on Twitter, Sam Livingston Gray, sent me a bottle of original scent. And Stan Ng and the folks over at payoff.com sent me the man scent pack. Uh, I think it's the, the, the tool chest one that came with two flavors, heavy duty and plutonium. And duty, of course, is spelled D-O-O-D-Y. Original scent smells like lemongrass. Heavy duty smells like sandalwood. And plutonium smells like fir trees. And I am allergic to fir oil. And so there's a really hilarious uh, rant in my Twitter feed about the parts of my body that swelled up and got hivey. Uh, when I sat over that. So it's a scent that literally tried to kill me. We had to open the windows in the middle of, of January, open all the windows in the house and air the house out overnight to get all of the fur oil out of the house so that I would stop swelling up and having bronchitis and being sick. They have a no stink guarantee. I am way, I am very ashamed to, of how proud I am of the fact that yes, I have defeated Poopery. All I'm going to say is if you do enough and it stinks bad enough, you can defeat it. But you really have to work at it, and I really was deliberately working at it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, Next time can we have our guests do picks before David? <laughs> before before, before the guest just goes, my God, why am I here? Um, so that's all I'm going to say about that, which is far, far, far too much. The product actually works. The product is freaking amazing. The lemongrass scent absolutely smells heavenly, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I think you should get a bottle. And those are my picks. Make it stop. <laughs> all righty. I have a pick really quickly. That is the blogging course by John Sonmez. John is a friend of mine, but he, he was also on the show a few weeks ago, and we got a lot of good feedback about that show. So if you're looking at doing better at marketing yourself as a software developer, he has a course on that, but the blogging course is actually free and it's an email course. So you'll just get an email every day for a few days, you know, basically walking you through the steps of starting up a blog that can help uh, get you a little bit better known. So I'm just going to pick that really quick. Ryan, what are your picks? Yeah, so I had mentioned Gitter before, and I thought that would actually be a pretty good pick. I know Coraline mentioned IRC. Gitter is kind of a... I would say a web, it's very similar to how people use IRC, but it's sort of web-based or there's apps that are pretty good. And then it gives you 
chat rooms based on your GitHub projects. So it's really nice for teams. It kind of actually, for me at least, it kind of meets the needs of something like a hip chat or something like that. You can put code in there and you get code highlighting. And then you can see kind of on the side all of the stuff going on in your GitHub repo. So for, I think, you know, I'm only using it for open source projects right now, but I think anytime you've got a team and you're using, you kind of need a team chat, it's a great, seems like a great product. It's free for open source projects. And then the one other thing I wanted to do as a pick is actually, I'm actually going to give a shout out to Bozeman, Montana, where I'm from. It's a pretty great town if you're looking for somewhere that's a little quieter, but still has a good tech scene and has kind of, you know, a little cheaper to live than somewhere like San Francisco. Bozeman's great. It was 55 here yesterday. So, <laughs> so I just thought I'd do that as a pick. And then last thing I, I kind of mentioned Vertex. And Vertex, if you haven't seen it, it's actually, I think it's written in Java, but it runs on the JVM. And there's a thing called Jubilee, which lets you use it as sort of a rack server. And so Vertex has a lot of really neat things built in. We're, we're hoping to do some integration with Vault. But right now, if, if you haven't seen it, I think it's got a lot of potential and, and maybe kind of an up-and-coming technology in the future. So those are my three picks. All right. Well... I think that's all all we got. So uh, thank you for coming, and hopefully some folks can go out and try out Vault. If they want to get a hold of you, what are the best ways to do that? Um, I'm always in the Gitter chat room. So if you go to vaultframework.com, there's a link to it on the community page. That's probably the best way. And thanks so much for having me on the show, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, right. yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Ruby and JavaScript go together like peanut butter and jelly. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Eric Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and Ruby Rogues and are up on the latest tools and tricks you'll need to write great JavaScript. He covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everyone. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited and can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at rubyrogues.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.